This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 449 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, February 24th, 2017. And this week, we've got a gang of people calling in from the Indoor Environmental Science Forum just wrapped up earlier this week from Tampa, Florida. We've got John and Lydia Lapoter, Richard Alexis, Pete Consigli, Peter Krosa, we hope will be joining us. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. But before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. I'm sorry to report there was no correct answer to last week's IEQ Radio Trivia Question. The IEQ Radio Radio Trivia Question for Friday, February 24, 2017 has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IEQ Radio Trivia Question. What is the number of the Florida legal statute that governs all mold professionals, which includes mold assessors and mold remediators? Back to you, Joe. All right, let's jump right into it. This week was the Indoor Environmental Science Forum in Tampa, Florida, and uh, just wrapped up yesterday, and we've got several of the speakers that were part of the event joining us at the table today, and uh, I'm in the studio, and the Z-Man is down live in Tampa with uh, Richard Alexis, who um, was the organizer of the of the conference, Pete Consigli, John Lapoter, and Lydia Lapoter, who were speakers and also event organizers, and of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, let's turn it over to you for a minute, uh, Cliff. Maybe you can give us a quick summary of how things went. I think it went great. Uh, very happy that, you know, we just looked at the reviews while we were here, um, you know, people were were happy. The event, if I had to describe it, it's really like yin and yang because the people that were there were either remediators or they were assessors. And I think each one of them comes to an event like this with uh, a separate set of needs and a separate set of ideas and, you know, feelings and emotions uh, 
and opinions. So I think everyone left satisfied based on the reviews. Let's bring Richard like, Alexis guess, in. Richard, yeah. you were you were the guy that started this whole thing. I'm not sure what your proper title is, and uh, I know it's maybe a little tough to get you to speak up and, and uh, so our listeners can hear you, Richard. But uh, tell us a little bit about why you started this event and what, what were your thoughts on uh, why you got this going. Thanks for that opportunity, Joe. Um, it actually uh, was kind of interesting. Uh, I'll try and be brief yet factual. Uh, the legislation put before uh, the uh, uh, powers to be for five years vetoed any bills that were potential to come in because of the right to work state, and they didn't want to put people out of work. In 2010, when the Florida statute, which I'm not going to give you the number of because that's the question Cliff asked, when that Florida statute went into effect, shortly afterwards, I was uh, uh, aware of the first training that was held. It was held in Orlando. There were a hundred in excess of a hundred people in attendance, and the Saturday morning keynote speaker, the opening question that was asked was, "How many people are familiar with the IICRCS 520, which, as we all know, is our industry standard?" And unfortunately, only five hands went up, and it was that that item that that happening that I decided to start a training much uh, different than the IAQA because I had been going to them for years and the level of material and speakers was so much uh, higher uh, than those who now held the license that I decided to start a training for those that had no idea what the 520 was, had no idea what this industry was about. And my goal was to bring that along over the years, culminating with what went on this week, which was absolutely phenomenal. And Cliff, no, I'm sorry, I don't know if you had something else you wanted to add. Um, no, actually, I have a question for Richard, which is, you know, from your perspective, how is the Florida mold legislation going? Um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you my personal take on it. Uh, and, and to sum it up quite concisely, very poorly. And the reason I say that is because the DBPR, the Division of Professional Regulation, doesn't have any money to police our industry. And the unlicensed activity that we see as professionals is just deplorable. And, and my personal contact with the DBPR has led to no uh, effective action against unlicensed activity. So my perspective is, while it, it exists, uh, there's too many boys. It's too, 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 it's too weak a program right now. That's, that's my personal take. Cliff, you have a follow-up? I do, Joe. Thanks. Um, I was surprised. One of the questions that came up of, you know, during the uh, event was someone asked Richard how many people were licensed uh, in the state of Florida, either as an assessor or as a remediator, and I was astounded, Joe, 
There's 17,000 people that are licensed in this state. And in my opinion, they're making a mountain out of mold. Uh, Cliff, it's always a classic having you on here. Let's talk. Uh, let's let's bring in the Pete Pete Consigli, the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog. I want to continue the discussion of Florida, but let's let's table that for just a moment and get Pete in. And Pete, maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about what your role was here with this event and uh, what you'd like to see happen in the future. Yeah. I think I I think I like to defer what I like to see happen in the future. Maybe kind of towards the end of the show, sure. without getting into that. Let's kind of kind of keep it in sequential order. But listen, my kind of role, my official role in the show, uh, Richard was the organizer, and he uh, he uh, kind of delegated to me to be the, the conference facilitator um, for the uh, the the actual two day technical sessions of the conference, and then uh, my secondary role was in conjunction with John Lapeterre. We were the uh, co-developers uh, of the program. So we worked to develop the educational program. And, you know, John will weigh in a little bit later in comments that, that he may want to have on that because that was one of his roles. And then uh, him and, and his wife, Lydia, had a, a, a dual role together, obviously working as speakers on the program, which was a different role. So those were, were kind of the roles. But uh, how the whole thing kind of came together, and Richard hasn't, totally comment on that and maybe you'll get a chance um as we continue the interview but uh you know well as you know joe and maybe some of you some of the listeners know or don't know the the i the launching of the iesf is something that kind of in some ways had its roots and sprung out of your you know annual healthy building summit event uh that that you've been doing up there in um uh in uh seven springs right and so, uh, so a couple of years ago, you know, Richard uh, announced the first one, which was done last year in Fort Lauderdale with uh, Dr. Joe Spurgeon, was the main keynote guy. And, um, and anyway, and that kind of kicked off. They had a tremendous, tremendous crowd in there. And then that kind of led to uh, saying, well, what are we going to do the following year? So uh, since the REA convention was in Orlando, John was there and uh, Richard came over um, we had a conversation at the end uh, with Cliff, a bunch of us in the bar when the convention was over to talk about it, and we kind of came up with the idea and the concept of developing the theme for this year, the, for this year's program, and it was kind of done at the bar of, around wings and a couple of drinks and written on the back of the napkin, and uh, that's how we came up with the, uh, with the theme, which was called Anatomy of a Mold Remediation Project, colon, Developing Professional Protocols. So based on that... That's how the program was developed, and maybe I can get into that a little bit later if you want with some of yeah. those questions of how we developed it, how we brought the speakers, and how it came about. But that's that's essential to the roots of my role and how how the program came together, relationship with Richard. Now John was pulled into it, and here we are. Well, let's bring John into this. John, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the um, you know you're the president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. I I believe they were a, a sponsor. Um, of the event. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came about and why? Well, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a, a, an outstanding organization, well-led, I might add. <laughs> 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 uh, we, we have established regions. And the, the intent of, stash, of establishing the IAQA regions is to have more member-to-member interaction 
um, have a more local-based regional event that is easier for more of our members to attend. And as we all know, there are you know, no, no shortage of regional events for indoor air quality and mold and building science. So it made perfect sense for us to support the IESF in Florida, Florida being its own region. So we decided that we would fully support each year IESF for our local members. It's been a great success for us. And John, I wonder if you could follow up a little bit on the Florida regulation and implementation to date. Do you agree with Richard's assessment of how things are going down there? I do. It's, it's kind of unfortunate. Uh, you know, Florida has a lot of people involved in restoration and mold-related services. And these individuals have varying levels of education and knowledge and experience. The intent of the state licensing law was to require each individual that's providing mold-related services to have a minimum level of education and experience as well as insurance. That's great. It really sounds like the intent of the licensing law was great. Uh, unfortunately, Florida had loopholes in that intent. As Richard said, the intent was never to limit somebody from being gainfully employed. So the uh, statute allowed for an individual working his way up to becoming licensed to work under the supervision of someone licensed. That's great. We all agree upon that. However, the definition of supervision is where the loophole lies. So supervision is defined by the state is anyone who states they're being directly supervised by anyone else who has a license is being supervised even if that individual is providing a mold assessment or mold remediation in South Florida and the licensee who they've never met is based out of Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> that is enough supervision for the state, which has led to a, a surge in poor remediation, um, exaggerated remediation, and a plethora of mold assessors who do little more than collect an air sample, a single air sample in some cases, and declare a property grossly contaminated with mold. That is what led us to the Indoor Environmental Science Forum, where we intend to inform as many as we can of the industry standards of practice that govern mold assessment and mold remediation. While the S520 seems to be gaining in popularity, the ASTM 7338 seems to be a relatively unknown uh, mold assessment standard of practice that isn't being met. So for the benefit of not just the Indoor Air Quality Association members, but for all members who are, are all uh, mold professionals that are licensed or not, we just intend to get that information out there. But as far as the, the licensing standard goes, there theoretically could be one licensed mold assessor in the state supervising the other 8,000 and one licensed mold remediator supervising the other 7,000 and everybody would be covered. The requirement for minimal training experience and insurance seems to be um, not holding strong. I, I have a follow-up question, John, and this is both to you and Richard. Um, both of you are actively involved in the industry. You've been involved for some time. You both have higher than normal 
profiles pretty much as high as you can get, I think, in this area. Are you either of you aware of a single incident in which the government or the state has cracked down and thrown the book at somebody and prosecuted somebody? Well, yes. Uh, Lydia and I have been involved in several investigations where unlicensed activity has been pursued up to and including criminal, criminal prosecution. Uh, so they will pursue, they will prosecute, they just have to have the right complaint process followed. Um, I, I wouldn't say that they're not willing to pursue, but I will say they're unbelievably overwhelmed at the time. But I know that they will pursue up to and including criminally. Okay, another follow-up question. Of the 17,000 people that are doing this type of work, either assessments or remediation, what percentage do you think are underneath the radar, the, you know, that are, that are unlicensed that are doing it? You know, Let me interrupt. The 17,000 are licensed people. I understand. The ones that are unlicensed make that figure even higher. No, I understand. Yeah, I understand. Okay. I, I'm asking what percentage do you think are, you know, what percentage do you think are totally underneath the radar? Well, I would say it, it's clearly not going to be that number, or one would hope that it's not that number. But there are many who are licensed who will have three, four, or five working under them that are unlicensed. You can have a mold remediation company with one license holder who will declare that he's the qualifier for that company, which is not covered in the mold licensing statute. But regardless, that mold remediator can have uh, a half dozen or more crews that are all running without any supervision from anyone licensed and very little, if any, training. And that, if I may interject, is only a portion of the problem. The, the area that I'm familiar with, and I'll, I'll say because my, my business uh, encompasses a large uh, population of Miami, there is total unlicensed activity without even the benefit of an overseer or a licensed individual. There are handymen that are hired left and right to do mold remediation, despite the fact that if I write a protocol and I suggest to the client that they use the licensed individual because it's required, they will often elect to hire an unlicensed and unsupervised individual often considered, you know, a handyman. So what Richard is describing is that even with the expense of the licensing and the amount that the 17,000 pay the state, our state operates the same as any other state without a licensing law, with the exception that 17,000 are paying money to the state and getting no benefit from that fee. <laughs> well, and they're also... And that's then, government for you, Joe. <laughs> well, this has been a common complaint about licensing in general, whether it's mold, asbestos, um, you know, whatever, uh, restoration, uh, general contractors, plumbers. And that is that oftentimes the people who see the enforcement are those that are trying to do the right thing and get the license. I mean, what what suggestions do you guys have for 
stopping that, um, you know, personally, I, I, I just think having a licensing law is a, a waste of time and money unless you're going to really do something to enforce it. And uh, even then, I'm not sure if it's the right thing to do and, and that mold is the, the right thing to license, but that's just a, a personal opinion. What do, you, what do you guys suggest they do to make this work better? Hey, Joe, hey, Joe I want to yeah. jump in this first from 30,000 feet before those guys come to Florida. For one thing, I think they should just get rid of the friggin' licensing law, period. Because if they don't have any oversight of it, what's the point? If the whole thing was designed to protect the public and they don't oversee the law, the public aren't being protected. So you should just go back to buyer beware and and let them hire the professional people they want and get rid of the bureaucracy. And what I want to dovetail from my personal experience, why I feel like that, was in 1980, when I was lived, when I was lived for 20 years in California, they, the California same Consumer Protection Division got on this, this rant and this kick about using solvents to clean fabrics and buildings, you know, when we were in the carpet and drapery. They, they regulated the state. They did all this stuff. They made us get licensed to do this to operate. And two years later... They basically dissolved the department, threw the law out, and all the guys that spent all the time and money to do that basically wasted their time. This is how the big government operates. Of course, you know, that's a blue state. We're a purple state. You can go either way. This is kind of, you know, red thinking versus blue thinking. I think they need to just get rid of it. Now, now we'll bring it down to 1,000 square feet and come into the living room, and I'll defer to John and Richard. Yeah, but, you know, let me jump in here real quick. I don't... I want to go push back on the red state, blue state, because I see just as much of this in the red states. Look at Texas, Louisiana, their red states, and their licensing mold. Virginia was a nightmare, another purple state, that I and others spent a lot of money on helping people get their license, and then they rescinded the law two years later or three years later or something like that. You know, it seems like people who are um, very conservative and very anti-government regulation – they, they're that way until it comes time to regulate their own industry, and then all of a sudden it's okay to have a licensing law. I mean, it's you know you can't have it both ways. So I don't know what the right or wrong answer is here. I'm just kind of pointing out the things I see. Go ahead, Richard or so, John, whoever. You know, here's the issue. So each state that wants to establish a licensing law needs to understand that first they need to define their intent. So I think Florida did a relatively good job of defining their intent, which was to ensure that those providing these professional services, mold-related professional services, had training and experience in insurance. I, I think there's value to that for a consumer. Unfortunately, if you don't need, if the state doesn't require you to have any training or experience, and they allow you to perform that mold-related professional service under questionable supervision, then the the licensing simply becomes a tax for doing business. But I I will tell you, without hesitation, the tax is voluntary. You don't have to pay the tax. You can eliminate your license, buddy system up, and the, the problem goes away. So at this point, there's really no need for a licensing program. It's little more than a tax. It's not guaranteeing that the uh, individuals providing the service meet any criteria. We're not going to be able to govern the handyman 
from providing mold-related services. We're not going to be able to prevent a property owner from hiring whoever they want. So it was an attempt to raise the bar without any ability to maintain the height of the bar. Each state that provides or that, that promotes a state licensing needs to be very careful that they establish a method for maintaining the intent and stop focusing on how they're going to rewrite the standard of practice for providing the service. The standard of practice is there for remediation, the IICRC S520, and for mold assessment, the ASTM 7338. If they want teeth, they adopt those and they establish a method for ensuring training and education and they keep the licensing cost extremely low. The intent then would be to get the training and experience and maintain a, a method of tracking good or bad services by those licensed individuals. My thoughts on the state of Florida licensing, it's reduced itself to little more than a tax on those that want to do the right thing and those that don't want to do the right thing simply choose not to pay the tax and continue doing business. Well, you agreeing with the watchdog on that one? Let's get another um, another opinion in here, at least a, a, a different perspective. I understand Peter Crosa has joined us. Peter's an independent adjuster in the Tampa Bay area uh, with Peter Crosa and Company. He's also the current president of the National Independent Insurance Adjusters Association, the NAIAA. And, Peter, I'm wondering if um, you could maybe tell listeners a little bit about what are the thoughts on licensing within the independent insurance agent world? Well, greetings, Radio Joe. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Good to talk to you. All right, yeah, I, I, I came in late, but I'm listening to this conversation. And, uh, you know, I've been licensed in Florida probably since for 40-some-odd years. And you are totally correct. I am licensed as an independent adjuster as a concealed carry permitter, as a, a licensed private detective, and each year when renewal comes up, you do not have to qualify or do anything for competency. All you do is pay that fee, which you're right, it is a tax, in effect. And it, it usually ends up to be anywhere from 100 to $200 per license uh, to keep you compliant. So I'm in total agreement with what's been said. Oh, Florida has no state income tax, so maybe this is the way that you know they they fill that void by getting taxed in other areas, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I'll give you a new nickname, man. I'm also a concealed carry guy, but I'm gonna call you Peter Gunn. All right. <laughs> All right. Hey, hey Joe. Right. Peter walked in here. He's got his Cuban hat on. He's got his Florida shirt. He kind of looks like he's on vacation. You know, it's, and, and he's and he's actually working dressed like that in Florida. So this is a, this is a good time of year. It's snowbird season to be in a sunshine state. Every day, my man. Well, Peter, what what do the insurance companies think on licensing? Do they have an opinion one way or another? Do they think mold remediation and assessment professionals should have to have a state license? I have not heard any discussion like that. Uh, basically, they they uh, question everything you do, and um, uh, maybe there's an assumption that you guys are properly certified and trained, but they interpret that as a license to steal. So they even mistrust you more. <laughs> Joe, I want to chime in since you introduced the subject of insurance because that's exactly what I have been saying for years. I can't imagine I have to pay 
for a $1 million insurance policy for my business. There, the, 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 those that fall under the umbrella of another licensed individual that John has been talking about are not paying that insurance. The individual that holds the license that allows these people to come in under his license are where the link, the weak link of the chain is. And it's my belief that if the insurance company would investigate all of the people that fall under the umbrella of a license, it would open a lot of eyes and perhaps start be the start of cleaning up what John and I have been talking about with regard to incredibly unprofessional, untrained individuals taking money from the public. So, Joe, let me just chime in one thing here. Go ahead, John. Because I want to, I want to take the opportunity to, to give my opinion of where the industry focus should be as opposed to licensing. So uh, we can probably all agree that the issue with assessment and remediation done poorly is lack of knowledge of how to perform the proper remediation and the proper assessment. I think the industry's focus should be on educating the insurance companies and the independent adjusters on what the minimum standard of practice is, what a true mold assessment should include so they can discount and discard mold inspections that are little more than the collection of a few air samples. If we don't focus on starting from the top down and stop uh, having insurance companies accept poorly written protocols and assessments that are leading to excessive uh, uh, fees and insurance claims, we're never going to get better. And obviously, we can't start doing that from the bottom up because there will always be a loophole. The answer is starting with the insurance companies and raising awareness and understanding of what the assessment should include and what mold remediation or water damage restoration consists of. All right. Somebody else wanted to jump in, Pete? Yeah, you know, Pete can the other that. thing, from an educational and a training standpoint, here's another collateral kind of negative impact that's had. You now have this group of 17,000 people in the state who have this requirement every two years to get these CEU credits. Most of them could care less about the training, the education. All they want to do is just go, go get their credits, however they want to do it, which is exactly the wrong reason when people educate themselves. People should go to a program, first and foremost, to get information and do a better job to help grow their business. If they also get credits for CEUs or CECs for other industry certifications they have, ACACRAA, IACRC, etc., that should be a secondary benefit. And this is the part that is very aggravating to people who have to organize programs and bring people in. You got people there who are sitting there who could care less, just want to get in and out, which undermines the program, versus people who will come regardless of whether they need to see EUs. And that it sets the bar higher for organizers to put quality programs on, which helps raise the bar and advance the industry. So, you know, uh, I, I would, I would, anyone listening, anyone who's going to read Cliff's blog, look at educational programs based on content, and not only because I need the credits, but if you get the credits too, great. That's the gravy. Go, go to a place where you're going to get good meat and potatoes, and the gravy's secondary, meaning the CCs. If the meat and potatoes is bad, who wants to waste two days of their lives 
to get a little gravy that tastes like crap just because you got, you know, your CECU credit. So I'll, I'll get off my soapbox on that, Joe. Well, that, and I know you fair. as a professional trainer, if you don't agree with that 100%, you do at least 95%. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Hey, we, we've got a – first, we have two special announcements, and then we are going to um, – go to our halftime and thank our sponsors. And also, I think we might be able to pull in a, a, another guest or two from the audience out there or down down in Tampa. But uh, before we do, John, hit it. Unfortunately, from time to time here on IAQ Radio, we have to announce that some of our past guests have passed away and some industry pioneers. It's with much sadness. We're sorry to inform you that Dr. Jack Thrasher passed away Friday, January 27, 2017. Dr. Thrasher worked tirelessly throughout his life to advocate the science, to advance the science in the field of toxicology. He freely shared his knowledge and expertise with everyone Dr. Thrasher joined IAQ Radio for an interview on 10-24-11, episode 223. I urge listeners to check it out if you haven't. He's an excellent speaker and toxicologist. He would also send occasional emails about shows and guests, and the IAQ world has lost a tireless advocate. Yeah. Well, I kind of took a couple of notes on Kurt Bold night. I first met Kurt in the late 80s and the early 90s when I was a trainer for Dries. He came to the classes, and he was kind of entertaining, pioneering kind of guy. His family had been, he was second generation being in the cleaning business. And uh, throughout the 90s, you know, he was very innovative. He shared freely with the industry, participated in all the industry associations. Uh, a couple of his big accomplishments was developing the Extreme Extractor, which really led to a lot of the, uh, facilitating the, the on-site drying and uh you know, uh, improving how people, uh, water restores dried buildings. Uh, his hydro lab, you know, uh, uh, really was on the front end of the, of the, the early days of building these ASD houses. Um, he was a pioneer in the rental area to, uh, uh, allow low cost rental to, uh, to help support guys out in the field during the hurricane seasons. And then, uh, really huge supporter of training when he developed his extreme team and he always wanted to really push the envelope. The one thing I'll say about Kurt is whatever he did, he he did it like on steroids. He had his 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 commitment to quality, to wanting to do the right thing, to get multiple viewpoints and opinions at his lab was really second to none. Uh I think he was honored for all those contributions and I don't remember the year, but in the two thousands, first decade, Clean Facts, one year he was nominated he was a uh honored as the Clean Facts Man of the Year, which is a pretty prestigious industry award. But to, clo- to close up, I want to do two personal things with Kurt with me. The first thing was <clears throat> what we did when REA did the Donnybrooks, 
the drying debate from 2006 to 2008, and he jumped right in, and he was the referee for the Donnie Brooks. He wore the referee shirt with the whistles. Anyone that was at any of those events over the, the, the three or four events that we did it, we'll, ne we'll never forget it. It was really tremendous. And that led to him bringing his big trailer. Those are the guys who are listening in who knew Kurt. His other love was cooking. He loved to cook. And uh, he had this big grill and a smoker, and he would travel around, and he came to summer camp for two years in 2010 to 12, I think, and uh, did his pulled pork, and we cooked the big steaks on there and all that. And at one particular point, Joe said, we had the whole thing parked in the back. He said, boy, this looks like the Indiana State Fair. You know, we brought the sweet corn from Indiana and all that, and uh, and was really great. And I so – and within the last year, I, I did two things with Kurt. You know, I over the years, I've always visited Kurt at his labs. I'd spend a night at his house. We'd make fried chicken and just hang out, and I always kind of connected with him like that. Uh, the one thing, I don't remember the show when it was set up. It was it February 15th? You wrote on here. Yeah, yeah we, we did. We did, Kurt, Kurt, we did a live radio show from the Hydro Lab. I think that was the first for IQ Radio. Is it, we interviewed Kurt, and he had his entire class. I don't know it was a CDS class or whatever that was in there, really a live audience. I think that pioneered that, that we kind of filling in, like even like today, to get a peanut gallery. And then the last time I visited was about six months ago when I was on a big road trip for RAA. I spent a couple of days with him to talk about where he was going. And what his plans at the time was he wanted to take, and he had started take the hydrogen lab global. What he realized is the market was changing where people weren't coming into the lab, so he took it on the road, and he was doing little mini hydro labs around the country. And then he, you know, uh, and also he, he, in the, plus he flooded his own house and dried his own house and, and did a YouTube video on that, and that was pretty incredible. Um, he was an innovator, a pioneer. He died too soon. He'll be missed. Uh, my my comments on Porter are that everything he did was, like, bigger than life. And he was a big guy. Uh, he had a big impression. Um... And, you know, what, what What was nice about him is he was a student of mine, and it's just so nice to to see someone, who, you know, in the room who's inquisitive, who actually is smarter than the guy teaching the class, you know. Uh, and I, I think many times, uh, you know, we, we tend to think that the guy that wrote the standard, the guy that's teaching the class is the smartest guy in the room when there's a young guy in the room that's a whole lot smarter. So. Mm. IAQ okay, Radio. back to you, Joe. Like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. 
Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio. All right, let's uh, let's get back to the second half of our show. We've got Richard Alexis, Pete Consigli, John and Lydia Lapoterre, and Peter Crosa. And, of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, joining us from the Indoor Environmental Science Forum in Tampa, Florida. I'd like to go around the table at this point, and um, one of the things I think is is really important about doing these types of shows is that if each of you could point out some tip or or key point that you picked up during the last couple of days that you think would be important for listeners i'd like you to share that with them let's start with uh, richard oh my goodness i'm under the gun thank you for that <laughs> joe um as i as i pointed out earlier one of my goals in starting this organization which, by the way, last year's event in Fort Lauderdale was not the first training. I've been holding training for five years, was to start off at a level that those newbies in the industry could appreciate and understand and, and, and move that up in quality. And this show that John and Pete put together with regard to the speakers was absolutely outstanding. And I was so pleased to see the attendees appreciated the level of professionalism and the level of the presentations that were, were presented. And it kind of opened my eyes to uh, the potential, uh, as John and, and Pete have indicated to me, to get an into disciplinary approach going at these trainings. So actually, I'm looking forward to how we continue to A, raise the bar, and B, start to become more interdisciplinary in that pursuit. Pete? Yeah, I'm going to defer over to John. I'm going to give him seniority. Okay. John, lap <laughs> And that way, he can also pull his wife, Lydia, and who's sitting next to her. had hasn't said anything yet. Well, that's the other <laughs> thing we'd like to hear, both of you. Hey, Joe, this is Lydia. Hi, Lydia. Hey. Well, in my perspective, personally, what the, the, the one speaker that I got information from was Cliff Zlotnick's on how to trace and identify nuisance odors. Uh, I enjoyed going through all the questions that you should ask yourself. Uh, I saw all the different things and aspects you should look for when trying to identify a nuisance odor, and even uh, to the point where uh, he showed us how to isolate nuisance odors. Cliff, can you tell listeners a little bit about that, how to isolate them? Well, I think one of the things that uh, we did is when you think you uh, have have found it, there's a method that we've come up with using uh, aluminum foil uh, and a napkin and, and, and tape and you can put it over what we'd call the hot area and uh, step on it, or you can warm it up with a um, 
a, a hair dryer. You can also dampen the, uh, the the napkin before you do it. And because the outside layer, I think I'll get Harry to, uh, as part of the blog, I think we, we have a picture of it. I'll see if I can get him to superimpose uh, how to do that. But the nice thing about it is you kind of just crumple it up and the uh, the aluminum foil on the outside kind of holds the odor in there, and you can take it outside or take it back to your lab or uh, you know, smell it a couple of days later, use it as proof or evidence in a court case or, or whatever. Uh, so hmm. it worked pretty well. Okay. Uh, I learned about the technique uh, from Jeff May, actually, and then just figured out a way to make it a little easier to do and and faster so i'll give him credit for uh for teaching it to me john so you know i I love this this program i loved all of the speakers uh one of the things that i always find interesting is uh ralph moon's uh, duration of loss and the fact that he's been wetting different building materials in a controlled environment in his office for you know, more than five years to establish the rate of absorption and deterioration. That's, that's, uh, that's dedication. Um, I, I also like the different views uh, on the standards that just emphasize the need for all of the practitioners to know and understand the standards that govern their industry. You know, John, I'm glad you mentioned that duration of loss presentation because it's one I, I was really disappointed to not be able to to go and see. Um, can you give us a little more detail on what Ralph discussed there? Yeah, Ralph, um, of course, he works for a lot of insurance companies, and the issue with insurance companies is duration of loss to establish coverage. And lawyers involved in litigation <laughs> on that. <laughs> and they need the science to back it up. <laughs> so Ralph's intent was to expose different building materials to water in a controlled environment, temperature, humidity, and volume of water for an extended period of time, and to photo document and measure their rate of deterioration and absorption of the water. So he did it with common materials that included metal framing members that he exposed to uh, regular water, uh, salt water, all measured um, with the salinity. He uh, measured the absorption of uh, particle board, plywood, uh, MDF. The tax strip was unbelievable. The, the tax strip was pretty unbelievable. I can't remember. He was at like seven years or seven something. years to watch a piece of tax strip deteriorate to dirt. Um, that's his intent, is to determine how long it takes for a, a piece of tax strip to deteriorate to dirt, to discolor. So based on his uh, experiments and his studies, he believes he's able to determine within a good scientific <laughs> amount of, of reason, the extent of the loss. But I think more importantly, without getting into the specifics, I think the intent is to determine the extent of long as long-term versus short-term, short-term being two weeks or less, and long-term being anything else. That could then be applied to coverage causation, and so they could settle, help settle claims and determine, particularly when it's in litigation. Exactly. So I would say... The longer he keeps it, the more it confirms his opinion that this piece of building material couldn't reach this rate of deterioration unless it was long-term. Gotcha. That, that um, 
tax strip one really catches my attention. I, I had a project recently where the tax strips were basically deteriorated to a black powder. And you say uh, that took about seven years? That would be considered long-term. I don't mean to speak for Dr. Moon, right. but I think we could all conclude long-term. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Long time to get to that point. And it, it, but it made sense in this on this project because these homes had had problems from the time they were built, and some of them were seven, eight years old. So it probably leaked from the – and it was a construction defect issue. So that type of research – is the type of thing I'm looking for. And I think a lot of our listeners are looking for is, you know, how do we, you know, and then Peter, I would imagine um, that's the type of thing that insurance companies are also very interested in. Yeah. Here's a couple things I wanted to say. First, I wanted to tell you how impressed I was yesterday uh, at watching the level of engagement of your attendees at this conference and the questions that they asked, Everybody, there were about 70 or 80 people in the conference, and they were plugged in, and they were here to learn, and you could tell that they were committed to improving their their practice. I wish people in my insurance industry could see the level of engagement and commitment that you you people have to perfecting the science and, and your practice. What they think goes on is that you guys are figuring out how to get more money out of the insurance right, right. industry. Nothing is could be uh, farther from the truth. To that end, Joe, when you and I served on the board of the IICRC, we had just started talking about how to reach out to adjusters by way of adding a page to the IICRC website that was devoted to adjusters for use by adjusters and very user-friendly. We talked about uh, creating uh, classes or, or modified training sessions, introductory training sessions for adjusters that could be put in a can and shipped out to different instructors around the country to reach the different adjusting markets. And unfortunately, I had to uh, leave the board uh, early due to my adjusters association needing me at a critical time. But I, I would love to see that come back into play with the IICRC. I, I agree. Cliff, you got a follow-up? Well, yeah, I, I do. You know, I think... For many years now, it's established science. They use carbon dating to determine how old stuff is. And I guess we can call it Ralph Moon beaming or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> out, you know, I like how, you know, what, the, uh, what the duration is. So. Hey, Joe. Yeah, go ahead. Let me, uh, after I listen, let me kind of weigh in. The day one, if we were to give Emmys, uh, Ralph got the Emmy for day one. The way I kind of gauge that was that at our event, each of the speakers uh, and the way the program was done based on the conference and the theme was to do building blocks to take the job from the beginning to the end. And at the end of each day, we had a town hall meeting for about an hour, which was the hot, highest level of engagement with the audience with all the speakers up there. The questions from the audience, they Ralph was like, he was the superstar. He dominated it. And uh, as we rolled into day two, then we moved a little bit more to our friend, the Rain Man, uh, Mr. Ken Larson is flipping me affectionately, uh, uh, dubbing the Rain Man, and he, uh, and he, and he is an excellent driver too. Right <laughs> now, uh, he, he, his topic on day two really stretched the the bar for the audience because he talked about the TPAs, about you know this 
this dynamic that exists uh, and some of the stuff that Peter Croce just talked about, how they think all we want to do is, you know, is rip off the insurance and charge more where the honest guys working a living that could be further from the truth. And so he stimulated. Plus, Ken's passion is just unbelievable. And, um, you know, John and Lydia are well known with the audience. And, of course, they did an excellent job and they were, you know, very well received. But the audience didn't know. Ralph was new to them. He came with the science. It just dazzled them, stretched their mind. And Ken, and they, most of them, even though Ken's in Florida, he's a national trainer. And so they were kind of the new guys, you know. Uh, Cliff's information really stretched it. The, Cliff, the Pittsburgh Protocol was another thing that got him. We got him on day one, and everyone, you know, they didn't really kind of know and understand the Pittsburgh Protocol. I thought that was fabulous. Um, I think, you know, uh, uh, Eric Shapiro, who's known with the audience, been down here, trained before, you know, he gave a lot of meat and potato stuff. So uh, I think what stimulated and got him going was kind of the new stuff and, and, the, and the people that, you know, they hadn't seen before. And that, that's the whole point of, uh, of kind of pushing the envelope. So that, that's kind of my take on that, Joe. Well, I've got one more question that I want to go to the roundup, and this one's for Peter Croza because you mentioned TPAs, and I noticed there was a, a – a presentation on assignment of benefits and TPAs and working with insurance companies. And, you know, I'm just wondering, Peter, are, are things changing in the restoration world as much as at least some people would have us believe? I mean, or, or, you know, it seems like it's tougher and tougher. Um, you've got to deal with these third-party administrators. You've got to deal with um, program work, etc. Is it really as um, quick-changing as, as it seems? Well, if you're talking about the change on the insurance side, uh, what I'm hearing is that a, a lot of you contractors are moving away from the program business, and that's where you really get into a lot of trouble with uh, people who are semi-competent and put a lot of unrealistic uh, restrictions and requirements on what you do. And so there is a ton of business out there that is not affiliated with program business. So if, if that's the change you're talking about, uh, that is happening, but in, in terms of the insurance industry, there are still the code blues and the alacrities and all of these vendor programs. Crawford Connection, which is at the uh, is basically the center of the altar of the insurance industry that that a lot of your your practitioners go to. Uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. So hey, hey, Joe. Go ahead, Pete. Joe. Let me let me before you move to anything. I want to dovetail off. You know, I I guess it would be remiss. And we haven't mentioned Harvey yet. I almost forgot about Harvey. I don't know how anybody can forget about Harvey. Really? Come but on. <laughs> first of all, Harvey's so obviously well-known in the state. Everybody's known him. Most of the guys have you know, heard his pitch before. But he, he opened up day two. He had one hour. He was the opening speaker for day two. He, he hung around for most of the day. wasn't there for the town hall. And really did a very logical kind of progressive presentation, not just about the AOBs, but about the whole process of how claims are handled, you know, why you, they would be an AOP, why they may potentially go to litigation, how that potentially could be avoided, et cetera. So that, I think, was, was very valuable. And we got, we got some good comments on the evals on that. And um, anyway, uh, well, so that's for in, listeners. in that respect, if the battle continues in the, in the Sunshine State with uh, Harvey, it's all about the justice. And it's, right. that's Harvey Cohen. For those that aren't familiar with who Harvey is, he was a past guest. If you get a chance, pull up that uh, episode with Harvey Cohen. And uh, he talked about assignment of benefits, which is the AOB. And we're going to go to our roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out. 
All right, let's go. We're going to wrap it up here, and I, I think what we'd like to do is bring in somebody from the audience. Josh Winton and uh, your lead man, you guys have anything you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, sure, Joe. First and foremost, thanks for uh, thanks for having us here. Um, a new listener here, we're a couple episodes in and going to continue to listen. Um, uh, uh, my name is Josh Winton. I'm with uh, Discrete Restoration, and uh, Mike here, our lead salesman, and um, uh, we're sitting here literally across the room just listen to everything and what oh, based in Fort Lauderdale um, <laughs> based on what we're hearing here I agree across the board as I've kind of been a little bit outspoken here in the uh, the chat which is it's kind of come to a point here and it's I, I don't feel it's uh, you've got a number of things going on here but it's kind of the guilty until proven innocent to the licensed contractors where you have too many guys coming in giving the bad name for our trade because unfortunately, like we're talking about, there are some guys that are after the big chase. They want to knock it out of the park, whereas companies like us are genuinely showing up to these events, wanting to learn, wanting to build a reputation, going and performing the right thing, and when we're wrong, sitting there and listening why we're wrong rather than fighting and trying to prove our case. And I, I can't tell you how amazing you know, from the perspective of what I consider a relatively small guy in a huge industry, how amazing and invaluable this is. And I definitely encourage more and more contractors, assessors, just uh, anybody to attend these things. You know, Josh, I always say if you if you go to an event and you, you take back one key piece of information, one thing that you can build into your business that it's oftentimes worth the cost and you know obviously these things cost in both money and time what what's one of those key things that you feel like you're taking back for your business uh, knowledge i mean simply put i i think myself mike and the rest of our company i think we're studs in this industry we don't know jack in retrospect compared to what we're hearing from these folks because again this is a either newfound information or B, again, we're repurposing old information of things that, you know, was used in the past that, oh, this is new, when in reality, it's not new. We're just kind of bringing it back. Um, but the, the, the takeaway for sure is the knowledge, the application, and being able to implement this here, and then go back. Obviously, like you said, it's a business interruption to some extent, so I can't bring our entire staff here, but now it's up to us as responsible, competent leaders in our company to go back, train our guys proper, and continue that when we have new hires. Discreetly. Josh, thanks thanks for joining (laughs) us. I appreciate it. And uh, Mike, if anything you'd like to add. Mike? Uh, I just felt felt that the environment at at this convention was a lot more information friendly than other ones. Other ones that we've been to, it was more on just business transactions, trying to gain business, but this one here was more based upon uh, sharing of information. Uh, a lot of the veterans in the industry were sharing their information with the younger guys like ourselves and several other companies. And I just felt like the entire environment was more educational than uh, anything else we've been to in the past. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike and Josh both. Let's go around the table one more time. Thank you, we're almost Thank out you. of time. Richard, any final thoughts from you? Uh, I'm just... Uh, I, I, I'm just, you know, 
sometimes it's Yiddish words that that don't have a translation. But but I was failing, and the only I was glowing. I was this this to me was, and I'm not Jewish. So using Kvel is kind of interesting, but translators uh, <laughs> pride or probably the best way. I was so pleased, and and as I looked around the audience, the notes that were being taken, and as as uh, 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 Peter Pete uh, pointed out, the questions that were being answered, this was an exceptional interactive learning experience that I was absolutely proud to be part of. Well, thank you, Richard, and thanks for having IAQ Radio be a part of it as well. Any other final thoughts? Let's go to John and Lydia. Well, this is Lydia, of course. Uh, I was very pleased with uh, people that came up to me that were not, I mean, they were just getting started in the business. And they didn't feel comfortable standing up and asking questions. So a few of them came to me and just started asking questions. And I, I felt um, very fulfilled in, in helping those guys that just didn't have a grab hold yet, and, but they wanted to, to know what was going on. They, they, were, they were needing that knowledge in, as a sidebar I was able to help numerous people just by talking to them and sharing some of the information that that we have. Joe, the, the beauty of a forum like this is that all of the presenters, Lydia and myself included, Cliff, uh, uh, Pete, all, all of us make it very clear to every attendee that we're available not just now, but anytime in the future, reach out to us if you have questions. We're not uh, trying to... Uh, keep or withhold an industry secret, we're trying to pass on this information as, as easily as we can. So it's great to see all of these guys take the cards and welcome the idea that they could just give any one of us a call whenever they need to. You know, Cliff, I'm sure it did your heart some good when, I, I don't know whether it was Josh or Mike, talked about the fact that some of this is old information, too, that um, sometimes gets forgotten and, and needs to be brought back up and taught to the new folks coming into the industry. Yeah, it did, Joe. Um, yeah, for me, there were, there were a couple of uh, amazing moments. Um, I've just been over the years so irritated by IICRC standards that I wince like every time I, I, I hear them. And to see John and Lydia go, you know, demonstrate how ASTM standards, you know, can be utilized and uh, systematically, uh, and you know the way they're laid out, they're shorter. There's no reference, Scott, and there's really nothing to argue about with really the ASTM standards. So, so to me, that was, uh, you know, that was one of the highlights for me. Uh, Richard brought in uh, Yiddish terms. I'll, I'll introduce one myself, which is chutzpah. And if you're not familiar with it, it's like audacity or boldness. And I think the Rain Man, Ken Larson, uh, you know, I, I think he's out on the edge. I think he wants to be out on the edge. And, you know, he's really leading this conversation about... Uh, I would say uh, 
you know, some of the atrocities that, that occur uh, due to uh, third-party administrators and their relationship with, uh, you know, with, with restorers. And a couple of things, there's one thing he did and one thing he said. The thing that he said was grow a spine because I think many people uh, are afraid to fight for themselves. Then there's what he did. And what he did is, I guess I would call it Super Mario. He, he put together this, uh, he, he found the video, and, and this video is, some, is an Italian guy uh, talking in Italian in front of an audience. He's being interviewed. And this guy would, would say things, and he would laugh hysterically, and he would say things, and he would laugh hysterically. The whole thing's probably about five minutes long. And what Ken did is he took the, the person who was saying these things and laughing and said that he was a third-party administrator. And then underneath, uh, he, would, you know, he had these, uh, what do you call it, the subtitles. Right. And in the subtitles, he would say, uh, and he would just like outline you know, the, the whole process. And, and then he would you know, say something and would kind of laugh. At what he, it was absolutely hysterical. But I think it also made the point that he wanted to make. And these are things that, are, that commonly occur uh, you know, in, in the industry. So th those things to me. Uh, and then you know, what, what Ralph did, uh, I, I certainly took uh, things away from every presentation. So it was good. I was glad to be here. It was fun. And let's uh, let's let the the restoration industry global watchdog wrap things up. Pete, any final comments? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Well, I guess I'll speak for the vendors. Nobody's talked about the vendors yet. You know, without the vendors and the sponsors, uh, be real, real hard for Richard to organize and for us to put the show on and deliver it. And um, the two uh, premium uh, sponsors was uh, AML AEML Labs. Uh, from uh, Pompano Beach, Ron Mazor, who uh, was was uh, one of the premium guys last year, jumped on board. He's you know right there in the camp. But we got a new second one this year, uh, Kenny Rothmel from Sunbelt. And I think Ken found out uh, this is a whole new audience for Sunbelt. This group of guys, and he you know we with the two premium guys, we give them two or three minutes of podium time to you know address the audience. And Ken just poured his heart out on what Sunbell can do to help and how to help the industry. And, of course, just a major advocate for RAA. I think RAA picked up several new members from this event, guys going to the website. Maybe a few of them may make it out to Palm Springs. So I, I thought that was fabulous. Both, uh, both Ron and Ken said they're, they're, in, they're in next year or whatever we're going to do. Um, of course, John Don was right there. But one of the new uh, sponsors that came on this year was a Particle Plus company who sell uh, different uh, meters and instruments. And they had like a heyday. I mean, I think they sold like seven or eight of these instruments. And every time I looked at this salesman, he was they, their booth was placed by the last door where you left the expo hall and went into the uh, into the meeting room. And it was like he's sitting there with a guy who's getting ready to buy something. <laughs> and um, and there were several others. And Harvey, you know, Har Harvey. I told Harvey that if he wasn't able to be there for the for the final Q and A where we took the group picture, and it's probably up on Facebook that we were going to put the fake Harvey in there. Uh, he has in his booth this, uh, you know, yeah, this cut out of him. Yeah, and, and the cardboard. And we actually, in the little folder for the brochures, we actually put a certificate. We had it on the stage next to everybody else. And uh, 
And in Harvey's presentation, he knew that. And he said, well, the reason we do that is because the cutout's better looking than him. <laughs> um, but he's also, we're, we're thinking, and in closing, I, people are asking, what are we going to do next year and how we're going to push the envelope and everything. And I announced, for those, of you that, for those that stayed right to the end, I announced my first shot at a working title. And I came up with uh, microbial trench warfare, colon, a day in the life of mold assessors and remediators and kind of building on the same theme, take them through the life, what they do, and kind of build the bar to the next level. There's a couple of things that guys want to see that we're going to try to integrate in. The first thing is a lot of people talked about wanting to do a mock deposition trial kind of deal where we could learn and role play and really get into the details. Matter of fact, a couple of uh, the attendees who were big supporters of Richard's training company said people might pay separately just to come to that, even if they couldn't come to the whole conference. And then Josh is in the back shaking and nodding his head. Um, the other thing is, one of the things that Ralph did, and Clifford commented, this was great, when, and on Ralph's second day presentation, he did a series of about 13 questions, multiple choice, where he asked, asked the audience if they knew the answer, and it was kind of his wrap-up like he quizzed the audience. So someone came up and said, we need to do microbial jeopardy next year with Ralph. So I thought that was a great idea. And then finally, the other thing I thought would be good to be integrated in is to do some kind of demonstrations that where we could tie the vendors in, uh, showing how some of the instruments, some of the equipment works in the remediation, and if we're able to do something like that and provide a venue for it, I think those are the kinds of things. And finally, the last thing I learned from the whole thing is, with this audience in particular, they all love the town hall meeting at the, ver at the very end of each day, but they want more interactions with the speakers. And unfortunately, what happened is there wasn't enough time for that because we entertained a lot of questions during the program, and they ran out of time at the end. So what I was talking with John Lapator and Richard about as we develop next year's program, if, for instance, the guy's got an hour slot, he needs to do 45 minutes and we take no audience questions. They write them down. Then there's 15 minutes of those guys interacting to get that. And then we still have the town hall at the end because they're two different things. So that's what I learned as a facilitator and a program developer. I didn't really want to comment on what I learned as attendee and that, but, but as that is important because that's the kind of feedback we need to push the bar, maintain it at a higher level, and keep giving the people what they want so they keep coming back. So I make a commitment that we'll certainly try to integrate those kinds of things and put those things in. But all in all, it was great. Uh, they like to uh, have to see it moved a little bit towards the tail end of the week where it may roll over on a Saturday like we did with the first one. And, you know, the, 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 they'd like to see Fort Lauderdale's a city, but we also had Orlando on the plate. We're going to let this play out. If we went to Orlando and we moved it towards the weekend, a lot of attendees and guys like Josh said, hey, that may work because if we ended midday on Saturday, guys can get home out of the area and guys who want to bring their family and stay over to Orlando this Sunday may work. So we're, we're in the air. We're going to go have organization talks about it. And then we told the audience, put it on hold and we decide. But we're trying to own the week. Uh, after President's Day. And Mr. Crosa said next year his National Justice Program is that week, but if we're going to want him to participate in the mock uh, the deposition, he'll fly out of Atlanta on Friday and he'll be there Saturday, and that's the day we probably do, do the depo, so we're probably going to get Peter involved uh, next year too. But anyway, all in all, it was great, and we're looking forward to building on it, Joe. And I thank you on behalf of Richard and uh, John I thank you and Cliff, really, for coming down, making the commitment like you do with a lot of these things and really putting the show on. And I'm looking forward to Cliff's blog. And uh, thank you very much. 
Thank you, Pete. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests, Richard Alexis, Pete Consigli, John and Lydia Lapiter, and Peter Krosa. Great to have all of you with us. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, at the controls. John, you got to have faith. Next week, by the way, we've got the return of Richie Shoemaker, MD. Dr. Shoemaker hasn't been with us for probably three or four years now. We like to bring him on from time to time and see what kind of interesting new research he's going to be presenting for our listeners. So come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.